So, uh, as we've mentioned in the last several sermons of this series, the first sentence in the book of Matthew is, uh, is a pretty big one. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so, our particular take on this verse could be summarized like this. The book of the Genesis of Jesus, who is the Messiah, Christ, who is the son of David, and who is the son of Abraham. Now, uh, the claim that, uh, that Jesus is the anointed king of Israel, which is what Christ or Messiah means, and that he is the promised son of David, and that he is the promised son of Abraham is just loaded. It's just loaded. Now, I'm just going to summarize some of what the Old Testament has to say about the figure who will carry these titles around. Just, just some of it. This is not even remotely all that the Old Testament has to say about the coming Messiah and the coming son of David and, and the coming son of Abraham. Okay? Jesus will, if Matthew's correct, if this claim is true, Jesus will liberate the oppressed and he will free the prisoner and he will restore the exile and he will give sight to the blind and he will provide for the poor and he will heal the broken and he will crush the wicked and he will establish the kingdom of God. And here's the big one. He will reign forever and ever in a kingdom of peace without end. Okay? This, is just, this is just touching on the claims that the Old Testament has to make about the coming Messiah. Literally, the entire Old Testament builds to this point, stirring impossible hope in this one figure. And so you're left with a question when you read this sentence that that one man, this guy Jesus, is, is all of these titles, right? The Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. When you're left with that claim that, 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 that a single man is literally fulfilling all of the promises of God, you're left with a Pretty profound question. How? How can a mortal man accomplish the impossible? And what will he do to literally fix all that's broken in the world? Right? Tracking with me? You don't just take a claim like this and think, okay, yeah, sure. I'm following you. There's going to be a guy. He's going to come. And this guy's going to fix everything. Right? You should be queued up with, like, how? What? And I propose that the paragraph we're about to read was written to answer those two questions. How can a mortal man accomplish the impossible? And what will he do to literally fix all that's broken in the world? Okay? So let me read this with you. And then we'll circle back. All right? Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Okay. Let's deal with the first question first. How can a mortal man accomplish the impossible? The first thing I want you to notice about this passage is the author says five things that literally all mean the same thing. Five things. Five times. All right? Five ways to say the same thing. Before they came together... She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The virgin shall conceive. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth. Five ways to say the same thing. What is that thing? This is not Joseph's baby. This is not Joseph's baby. Okay, now... I'm going to pivot for a second and talk about something that is not the point of this passage, but I think it's important and relevant to our culture. Why does this episode focus on Joseph? Have you asked that question? Read Luke. What does Luke focus on? Like, who's the central figure in, the, in, the, in Luke's story of the birth of Christ? What? Mary. Mary. So why Joseph here? Glance back at the paragraph. Everything's told from Joseph's perspective. Listen to the words of the angel. Joseph, son of David. Joseph, son of David. Glance back at the genealogy. Verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Who's the son of David? Who's who's the heir of the royal throne of David in this story? Joseph. Who's, Who's the heir to the royal line? Joseph. Let me explain something really quickly. Uh, this word betrothed, it could mean engaged. 
or betrothed. You, you can use those. You can sort of revolve. The real trouble with those terms, though, is they're all sort of culturally uh, related to certain phenomena right now, right? Like, like you can be engaged in our culture, and in other cultures, you can be betrothed, and there's a whole lot of baggage to those terms. But in ancient Israel, being betrothed was a formal union, okay? Just to give you an example of what could happen if someone's betrothed, if they're in this situation that Joseph finds himself in, and, and there's, there's a, uh, the, the woman to whom I am betrothed is found to be with child, that's called adultery in this culture, okay? With all of the legal consequences of adultery. So, so Joseph was, had every right to file uh, for, for diver, divorce, okay? So I give you that context to explain to you that Joseph is the legal heir of David's throne, okay? And this baby does not belong to him biologically. Do you understand? This is not David's biological child. However, among the people of Israel, if a man is in this situation and he gives the child a name, the community recognizes that he is adopting this boy. Do you understand? If Jesus is to be the son of David, he must become so by adoption. And I can think of no stronger argument for adoption than its centrality to your redemption and to your coming kingdom. I'm I'm skipping ahead to application because this is not the point of the passage. But listen, there are 6,800 children waiting to be adopted in Texas. And there are 5,200 Baptist churches in Texas. I'm just just going to throw that out there. You can do the math yourself. There are 6,800 children waiting to be adopted in Texas. And there are 5,200 Baptist churches in Texas. Do you want to embody the gospel? Consider adoption. You won't believe how many people ask us why. It seems like it's awkward, right? But people come up to us in all sorts of contexts and say, why? Why Why would you do that? There's a great answer here in Matthew. There's a great answer. Amen? Amen? Take that, stick it in your pocket. That's not what this passage is about. Don't get me wrong. That's not what this passage is about. Okay. Five different ways to say the same thing. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The virgin shall conceive. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth. Those five things say the same thing. One, this is not Joseph's baby biologically. This is... God's baby. Okay. And there, quickly, simply, easily, we, we arrive at the answer to the first question. How can a mortal man accomplish the impossible? And the answer is because Jesus is the Son of God. This is no mere mortal man. This is God's Son. Who can restore the exile, give sight to the blind, heal the broken, establish a kingdom that lasts forever? Can you do those things? Somebody walks up to you with a 
I don't know what they're called, actually. <laughs> uh, this is going to seem insensitive either way. The thing that blind people used to see, what's in the ground? This stick, walking stick, I don't know. While somebody walks up to you, you really want them to see, can you, can you give them sight? No. Do you know anyone who can? It's a trick question. Because you do. Just one. Who can restore the exile, give sight to the blind, heal the broken, establish a kingdom that lasts forever? Only God can do these things. We aren't desperate for a mere man. We are desperate for a God-man. That's the first question. How can a mortal man accomplish the impossible? Jesus is the God-man. That's the answer. All right, next question. What will the God-man do to fulfill all of God's promises? To literally fix all that is broken in the world? Listen to the angel's words. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's a few things to point out here. First, Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. And anybody reading this page who's read this chunk will think, Joshua. Joshua. There are two notable Joshuas. Two significant Joshuas in the Old Testament. First, Joshua, the successor of Moses, who led the faithful generation into the promised land. Do you remember his story? Moses gives the people of God the law. And literally, before he can hand it over, what are they doing? Breaking it. Literally, before he can hand them the law, they're breaking the law. What happens to that generation? They die in the wilderness. But Joshua leads a people into the promised land. What's distinct about this generation? Not that they're spotless. It's it's not that they're spotless. It's that they're faithful. They trusted that God could do it. And Joshua led them across the Jordan into a promised land. Amen? Second, Joshua that's notable is in Zechariah 6. A royal high priest who will rebuild the temple and sit on his royal throne before the people. Two notable figures. The successor of Moses who led the faithful generation into the promised land and Joshua the royal high priest, the branch who will rebuild the temple and sit on a royal throne. But notice something. The angel doesn't land here. The angel doesn't stop there. He says the words, He will save His people from their sins. And that is an allusion to Psalm 
130. And you need to turn there because it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Psalm 130. Please turn. Read with me. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. <laughs> Good time. Let me read it to you. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. It doesn't take many words for an angel to remind Joseph that this little baby is the answer to all of Israel's pleas for mercy. It's easy for paragraphs like this to, to go into the file of, yeah, I've heard it a dozen times. I mean, we literally read paragraphs like this every year at Christmas. If you want to land the weight and gravity of this passage in your heart, remind yourself that you're the one singing this. This is you. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? Not me. Not me. Out of the depths I cry to you, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The name Jesus and this allusion to Psalm 130 teach us the nature of Jesus' ministry. Jesus, the Son of God Himself, will redeem the people of God by saving them from their sins. He will lead the faithful generation into the promised land. He will restore the worship of God and sit forever on His royal throne, ushering God's praise and fellowship with a redeemed people forever. So back to the question, what will the God-man do to fulfill all of God's promises, to literally fix all that is broken in the world? The answer is, He will save His people from their sins. See, a mere man can't heal or restore or give sight or liberate or provide miraculously or establish a forever kingdom. 
Yet a man must bear the sins of the world, stand in our place, be offered, be offered as sacrifice to absorb the wrath of God. We need the God-man. We need the God-man. So, I think this passage itself prompts a third question. Or at the very least, answers a question you didn't know how to ask. What happens when the God-man, the Son of God, saves His people from their sins? What happens? What is the response? What is the consequence of the God-man coming and saving His people from their sins? Keep reading. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Flip to the end of Matthew. Matthew 28. Flip to the end of Matthew. We're going to read the last verse again. First and last verses are pretty important. Let's start in verse 18. Jesus, having finished His work on the cross having accomplished the redemption of His people just before He ascends to the heavens and sends the Spirit. Listen to His words. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. No more romantic words have ever been written. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew says that Jesus is God with us. And he makes a big deal of it because it's at the very beginning and it's at the very end. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is God with us? Let's pull back. Let's let's sort of try and absorb the full scene of redemption. In order to redeem and restore His people, the Father sends the Spirit to conceive the person of Jesus, Son of God. And the Son, full of the Spirit, lays down His life to absorb the Father's wrath. And the Father gives resurrection life to the Son by the Spirit. And the Son returns to the Father and sends the Spirit to dwell among His people. 
Bad theology pits the father against the son. Have you heard this? God was angry. It's a good thing we have Jesus. It's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Who sent Jesus? The work of redemption. Your redemption is a Trinitarian work from, the, from start to finish. Truly God is with us in Christ. God is with us in Christ. Father, Son, and Spirit are at work in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. God in all His glory is with His people in Jesus. God is with you. What happens when the Son of God saves His people from their sins? They shall call His name God with us. So what does this mean for you right now? First, if you trust Christ, rejoice. Sing praises. Look, I know we're Baptists, but you are welcome to dance. (laughs) For God is with you. When you fail, and you will, (laughs) yes, heed the warnings. If you pursue sin, if you continue in sin, Callous, disregarding the work of grace means bad things for your soul. But you will fail. And when you fail, don't despair. For the Son has carried your sins to the cross. He has saved you. And when you're lonely and afraid, And when you doubt, don't despair, for the Spirit dwells with you even now, and He will comfort you in your distress and give you all you need for life and godliness, for His presence is a seal of your unimaginable inheritance. And when you're weary, don't despair, for the Father Himself has destined your rescue and your glory. You read these words, and they shall call His name Emmanuel. Feel the force of that proclamation. God is with you, Christian. God is with you. So that we can be like Paul, who's sitting on a cold prison floor, right? Bound in chains and praising God. Right? Amen. And, and if you are not in Christ, this is very good news for you too. You are so loved that God sent His Son to rescue you. All the guilt you feel, that hole which you're desperate to fill, with all the world's entertainment and promises, you're chasing. You are chasing. 
emptiness. But all the guilt you feel has already been carried by another. And if you trust Christ, you will be comforted and restored and readied for a better kingdom. Amen? If you... If you're not in Christ, if you have not trusted Christ, please come talk to somebody today, please. We'll be up here and around and in the courtyard. Amen. Let's pray. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.